Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. Given all that's happened in the country over the past few days, and of course I'm referring to the shooting deaths of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling in Louisiana, and last night of police officers Brent Thompson and Patrick Zamaripa in Dallas, along with three officers who are also dead and unnamed at this time. It seems completely absurd to do something like podcasting. There are no words to make sense of the evils in this country or the rest of the world that happen all the time, but are brought to light in our media-saturated world in ways that just disgust and confound and leave us speechless. Karl Barth said that in June of 1933, that he had the urgent task to get on with theology as if nothing had happened. Now, Bart wasn't suggesting that the church withdraw to the hills in denial of the Nazification of Germany. He was instead saying that National Socialism and Hitler at its helm shouldn't be allowed to set the agenda for the church. For Bart, theology that's in service to the gospel should always be related to what's going on without being dominated by it. Bart himself said that my thinking, writing, and speaking developed from reacting to people, events, and circumstances with which I was involved. But he thought that theology needed to be more like a compass than a weather vane. The Bible in one hand, the right, I suppose, and the newspaper in the other. So in that spirit, we're actually going to do a podcast today and continue as if nothing had happened, even though much has. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the victims and their friends and families in Louisiana, and in Texas. In just a moment, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend. But first, I had the pleasure this week of talking with Kim Crandall, who wrote a book, Beloved Mess, God's Perfect Love for Your Imperfect Life. What a wonderful book and a conversation I enjoyed. I hope you do too. On the Mockingcast for the first time, Kim Crandall, who is recording this call in lovely California. Wait, we didn't say Northern or Southern. Oh, Southern. I I wish I was in Northern. That's where I grew up, but I'm content here in Southern California. How close to San Diego? Well, I'm in San Diego County. So we're about a half an hour from San Diego beaches and maybe 40 minutes from downtown. So I feel like Writing a book like Beloved Mess that, you know, God's perfect love for your imperfect life, better in Minnesota. Because I've been to San Diego twice, and I feel like I'm not a bad-looking guy. Like, when I lived in Pittsburgh for five years, I feel like I was a Pittsburgh 10. People eat a lot of pierogies. They didn't work out. I feel like Philadelphia, I'm a baseline, like, six. When I went to San Diego for the for the first time, I was like, I'm not an animal. I'm a man. Like, are there ugly people? You know, there. my daughter was just talking to me this morning about her youth group. And she's like, you know, we're just a, a 
a group of really good looking kids compared to those kids, you know, north, north of us in the next County. And I said, honey, it's cause you're San Diegans. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, look at me. It's <laughs> exactly. I mean, you're, you're like, yeah, exactly. I mean, but you're still well above, you know, the, you're human, you're human looking, you're a, you're a Pittsburgh nine or 10. I mean, this is, um, yeah. It, it, I mean, if I was a Pittsburgh 10, I mean, you're a Pittsburgh, like 14. <laughs> Maybe I should move out there. <laughs> it's a exactly. It's, it's interesting out here. You know, you go to the beach and you, you feel really bad about yourself really fast because, yeah, um, depending on how much money you have, that that depends on how good you look. <laughs> What's really interesting, I think, about your book is that you're writing something that's targeted, I think, on some level for church people because people come to church, right, and and. Ostensibly, you come to church because you're a sinner, but really, usually it's an exercise. And hey, if I can just fake righteousness for a few more minutes, people will believe I'm a good person. But I almost feel like this is the book all my non-Christian friends who are in secular self, you know, religious projects, whether it's like CrossFit or Pinterest mom or, you know, stockbroker dad. I mean, like, I, I feel like the universality of your book is pretty incredible in that, like, if you just sit with this thing for a few minutes, everybody's got a whole lot of skeletons in their closet. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear you say that because I, I, I like that. I want that. Um, my editor kept saying, you know, you're, you're kind of using too many churchy words here. And I'm like, how do I speak about theology of these things without using churchy words. But, but I, I think that's true. Like we all have messes and that's where I, I really try to talk about, um, even if we're not measuring ourselves up to God's law, we've got the, you know, experiential law or L, little L law, as you guys like to call it on Mockingbird, um, just beating down on us whether we realize it or not. And you know, there's all the pressures of the world telling us that we're not good enough. And I, I really wanted to dive into that and, you know, pull that out as well. I had a friend who is a pretty celebrated guy in campus ministry, and he got divorced. Before he got divorced, though, he would say, let's just say his middle name was really was, his middle initial was A, but let's just say he was like John A. Adams or something, right? He would say, hi, my name is John A. Adams, and the A stands for adulterer. And everyone would go, oh, and, and, and he'd go, because I've been unfaithful to my God. Everyone would go, whoo. Everybody go, woo. And then when he actually got divorced, he got the scarlet letter for real. And so he was, you know, now it was like, you know, he, he got, so is it, it's like, one of the things that's remarkable is you actually talk about like serious stuff in this book, like laying on your bathroom floor with pills while your kids are screaming. And like, do people like when you go to speaking games, just like, okay, I mean, you weren't supposed to get that real. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder, um, I haven't had much feedback of saying that I'm, I, I think there's a, this feeling that I might have that I'm a little too much for people. Um, but I haven't had much feedback of people really bucking up against that. It's more like, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> um, and do you spend time in the, in the ladies room after the talk? Cause that maybe that's where it all the 
That is the first place on. that I go. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, then, absolutely. Then actually, you're speaking amongst good people. They're, yeah. they're, they are beloved messes, but at least there's not gossipers. Yeah, you know, the more of the feedback is like I just had someone tell me this morning uh, who worked at my chiropractor, and she said, "I feel so normal after reading your book." And and I, you know, I, I love that because it's like, that's exactly what I'm setting out to do. Normalizing our struggles, normalizing, um, our messes that, that you're not a freak because you struggle with depression or anxiety. It, it's not really setting you apart from the rest of God's people. Um, and I hope that people are getting that, not just looking at it like this, this woman's a mess, um, but no, we're all in this together. You tell this beautiful story in the beginning of the book about the the property that you live on that was once a scene of a wedding. And now you know you talk about like seeing it like now, and yet at one point a couple, you know, you talk about like the years have sort of worn, you know, certain things in the landscape, but you you, you sit and sometimes envision the bride and groom on the grounds. Like, how did that like did that like did that image predate the book? Was it something that came like after the, like, I mean, how did it, how did it, like, where you spend your days and in, in the place that seems like dear to you? Like, how did that develop with the book? Like what was the chicken and the egg, so to speak? <laughs> you know, it's, a, um, I think it, just thinking about perfection is where that started and how I wanted to, it, actually that was part, you know, in the original man, manuscript, I had put that, I think in the first chapter and I was trying to pull that out a little more about perfection. It just wasn't working. But um, I think that's a, it's a frustrating part of my life because I have this desire to see beauty and to see things right um, and to have things the way that they should be. And then God um, gave me four kids all close together. And it's like, I just don't have the ability to, you know, like with my property to maintain it up to the standard that I have for it and that, that it once was. Um, and I, I, so I, I, I look at that and then it, it kind of reflects my frustration with not being perfect. And I'm frustrated with this area of my property, not being perfect and how I want it to be. Um, and, and I think that a lot of that's, a lot of us feel that way about our lives. Like we're just so frustrated with these imperfections and this mess. And we, we know deep down inside that we were made to be perfect. We were made in God's image. Um, you know, and he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And, and that law is written on our heart yet. We know at the same time we can't attain it. So there's that tension there. And, um, you know, and that's, that's where Christ comes in. Do you think that's like easier? Cause you're in a, you're in Southern California, which is an area that's pretty, again, blue state-ish. Like, do you think that's easier to sell to Christians or non-Christians? Like the, the fact that there's some standard in your heart that's, that's saying, Hey, you don't measure up, you don't measure up, you don't measure up. Do you think that's easier to hear inside the church or outside the church? Or at least the, the diagnosis, maybe the cure is harder, but do you think the diagnosis is an easier pill among the religious or the irreligious? That's a really good question. Um, I almost feel like it's equal, depending on the, the group I'm with, um, because there's this sense of people don't want you to tell them that they're a mess. They really don't. And, um, and everyone's got their justification and their self-salvation projects, whether they're a believer or not. Um you know, so, so outside the church, I would think people would say, you know what, that's a really negative statement that you're making. That's a really negative attitude to have towards life. You gotta, you gotta have a, you know, um, look at things differently. You're really not that bad. 
and I get that. I kind of get that same thing from inside the church and outside the church. I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> Do you feel like you've written this book like providentially or, you know, maybe like fortuitously, like 2016 politically? I mean, you're voting for the two obvious messes, or but maybe like actually everyone's an obvious mess. And just like if you're up front on a, on some kind of party platform, you, it's harder to hide. Yeah. Yeah. It, I hadn't thought about that. Um, because we are in a big mess right now. I think it, I think it just magnifies, um, who we all really are, you know, that just that low anthropology of humanity, um, that it's, you know, you, you put people and you give them power and you put them out in front and you really see what kind of a mess, um, really can be. And, and I just having that, um, going back to that cannot be what we put our hope in. Um, this is what we need to be saved from. You know, we, we need to be saved from, (laughs) saved from our government. Our government's not going to save us. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the way that I look at it. And it's interesting that it did happen to come out at a very messy time. I, cause I feel like we're hard on politicians. Like, oh, they're all crooks. But on some level, I feel like we're all crooks and fraudulent. And then we sort of like, they actually probably have a harder time hiding it than we do. But there's some level like a scapegoat for us all. So we kind of like, but it's funny because like everybody hates their congressperson, but they get reelected like 90 some percent of the time. The incumbents like almost always win. So it's like this weird self-validating Oh, yeah. process where we're like, oh, okay, we hate them, we hate them, because we hate ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, we parentify them, even if they're younger than us, because we want to hate our parents and like kind of, you know, all the, all the transference. And yeah, it's all really like hating the mess in ourselves that we can't deal with. Yeah. I, it's, um, I do think that we're hard on them because I think that we really get this self-righteous attitude of, I would never be like that or vote for them. Or it's like, you know what, deep down in my heart, I really am like that. (laughs) I really, you know, I really do need to be saved from myself just as much as they do. And, um, and it's kind of like that, you know, if I start to complain about a pastor or something and I think, well, I'm not out there doing that. Like, I, I wouldn't be able to handle all that pressure. I wouldn't be able to hide. There is no hiding. I mean, everything is just dug up. I mean, it doesn't, I don't like it. And I don't, I don't, I'm not happy with our candidates and who we have ended up with. But at the same time, yeah, just, you know, according to the law, we're all just as bad as um, all of them, really. No. You tell this really moving story in the beginning where like you and your, at the beginning of the book, you and your husband basically were changing churches to go to someplace more local in your community. And you're like, you're in this diner and you're both depressed. You both feel like a complete mess. And the pastors were actually like decent people. Uh, and they actually, they talked to your pastor. So I'm guessing you had a decent relationship with like they, it sounded like it was actually a good handoff, which if you spend time in churches is so rare. Like, is it weird to go to church? Like, tell me what your church life is like. Cause it's almost like, uh, I feel like being this honest about your story in print. I mean, it might be easier to be like a transgendered prostitute because at least that's like, <laughs> oh, that's exotic. Like, all right, we got one of that. Oh, yeah, there we go. We landed somebody that's interesting. You know, but like, but you're kind of living the, a story that m- many people are living in, flirting with, you know, or, or spiraling in lower than, than, than you, but like, everybody's like really sheepish about admitting it. Yeah. I think if you look at my life from the outside, I, I think that a lot of people are surprised when they read this book. I think they, they don't, 
My life doesn't look. Messy. I mean, you're a Pittsburgh twelve. I mean, you don't look like. You know, I mean, I'm sure your husband is equally as good looking. So I mean, you know. I thought I was a fourteen at the beginning. Uh, fourteen. Of sorry. Sorry. Well, I'm wearing you out. I mean, I'm, I bore people. You started fourteen. Now you you, you dwindled to twelve. Yeah. I mean, um, I've got I've got a great relationship with my husband. I've got four healthy kids. You know, life life from the outside when people look at us, we're the good church going family. We don't look like we struggle. Um, and I think that's part of what is helping people, um, to see this message for themselves a little more too. And that at least that's my hope is like, Oh, I I'm kind of opening up myself to the world and saying, you thought I was this and look at what you're getting. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's an int- it's been an interesting journey because I came from in my own life I was just very very legalistic and very much about hiding who I was. Um, I hid behind so many things, and I thought that the way to be a good Christian was to look and act and talk and school and bake a certain way and dress a certain way. Um, to be what does the Christian bake like? <laughs> the Christian make well back back when I was in the whole legalism part of my life. It was about baking bread. Um, I think right now, I think it's more about selling oil. (laughs) Um, but it it was, yeah, the baking, baking from scratch, baking bread, always having a full meal on the table when your husband walks in the door kind of thing. And, um, I think just letting go of all of that. And I, and we have just developed so many great relationships through the transition of being honest and open about our family and our struggles. And because we seem very normal and, and I, and I think that's just important as far as honesty goes, because people look at you from the outside and, and they compare themselves, you know, we're all comparing all the time, no matter how hard we try not to, it just happens. And, but the problem is, is that we're comparing our worst, you know, what we know the worst about us deep down inside of us to that person's best. You know, we look at them, we only see the outside and the, the, um, kind of the imposter that they have made for themselves on the outside. And so of course we're not going to measure up to that. And, you know, and then completely defeated at that point. When you got over the legalism, did your husband lose weight? Cause you're not putting bread on the table. <laughs> I mean, is, is there a self seeking kind of dimension to it? Cause it's like, you know, Hey, you're not cutting the no car binges on me anymore. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. He definitely would. Well, I, I don't know. I think he probably gained weight because then I was free to go eat McDonald's and, uh, all those places that I was certain that were so unholy to eat that. <laughs> I love McDonald's. I love, I lo- and breakfast all day. I love everything about McDonald's. Did you grow up in the church? I did not. No, I, um, when I was a freshman in high school, I went to a winter camp with my sister had gone, started going to a Baptist church through the, it sounds school. like Dr. Shivago. <laughs> I went to a winter camp. <laughs> I was much to the winter camp. <laughs> and, um, so she had gotten into going to church and she had been saved and through this youth group, um, that was very prolific in the high school. And and then she got me to go. And at the end of the, at the end of the camp, somebody asked me to pray with them, like one of the leaders. And I said, sure, because 
I was that kind of kid. Like I just did things right. You know, if you asked me to do something, I did it. And so I prayed with her and apparently I'd become a Christian. I had no idea. Everyone You're like, like oh. if I'm going to be a bear, I'm going to be a grizzly. Like this is it. I'm <laughs> oh, in. Totally. Like, yeah. I mean, wholehearted. And, um, so everyone's crying and celebrating that I, apparently I was just saved and I'm like, okay. And so I just went with it and I started going to church. I did the whole Christian thing and I was really good at it. Uh, I just didn't, I was really good at not having sex, not drinking, not doing drugs, you know? And, um, that's what I thought Christianity was about. So I played the game for a very long time and it wasn't, you know, into, so you didn't do that stuff before? Like, were you like, no, I was a good kid. I was afraid to do stuff like that. My dad was a cop. Um, I just, I just morally, I, I was, I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to be out of control. So those things weren't very tempting to me. Billy, I, I heard Billy Idol interviewed on Howard Stern like a couple years ago. And he was like, well, yeah, I basically got laid for the first time at like 14. You know, I was high and drinking. He's like, wait, you're 14 and you were getting laid and had drugs and booze? Why did you even become a rock star? That's why people become a rock star. It's like, you're, I mean, most people get their kids into religion to keep them safe. Yeah. You're, you, you were already like the legalistic, like you had, you know, you had that, you, you had it down before you became a Christian. Oh, I was predisposed for legalism. I mean, I just, I, I fed off of it and, um, yeah, it, it must've been great for my parents. Now that I think about it, I, I was an easy kid because of it, but, um, so your, okay. Your book, like which I think is an incredibly liberative message for anybody that's at all self-aware. But what about when this happens to church leaders? Like, is this true for everybody except leaders? Like, okay, we're all a mess, except if you're a pastor or an elder, and then done. Like, basically, I mean, you know, there, it's, especially we're in the age of zero tolerance, right? Because of certain excessive abuses in the context of like the Catholic Church and things. So now it's like, okay, anybody in leadership, you know, it seems like, like we're you know, we create these kind of, you know, safe spaces by crucifying people that have made mistakes in leadership. Yeah. You know, and that's a very hit, really hits home with me. We, this past last year was a very difficult year in our life regarding our church and our pastor. And, um, I, I, I think there's a place for leadership to be messy for sure. Like, and I think I, as I talk to pastors, wives, I tell them, you know what? Pastors and their wives should all have personal counselors because that is a hard, hard job and they need someone to talk that stuff through with. But, and I, I think there's a sense where, yeah, we're, we're all free to be a mess, but then there's, there's also, I think there's also a, not a line, but a, you know, pastors are called to a certain, uh, certain integrity in what they do. And there's certain, you know, I, I do believe there's disqualifications for a pastor. Um, but that doesn't ever remove them from God's love. It does never remove them from Christ's righteousness. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to say in the book is it, it does not matter who you are or how bad you have been. If you are saved, you are under the covering of Christ's righteousness and you can't, you, you can't step out from under that. Um, you're loved right in the midst of it. Um, I don't know if that answers your question very well. Yeah, but does that, be, does that become a weapon for church boards though? Because like, well, we can really just shame you and put the scarlet letter on because vertically you're covered. Yeah. So horizontally we're covering our own ass. So like, you know, but, but we're kicking you out to the curb, elder, foot broken by, because you're still saved. You can see you prayed the sinner's prayer. 
clever, you know, uh, 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 you know, blood of the lamb, Christ's righteousness, see in eternity. Yeah, I, I think it's a, I think that's a hard thing to speak to because I think it's an individual basis because I think it depends on the heart and the intentions of that person. And I don't think that someone can screw up and God still can't use them. Well, yeah, I mean, because who, who would be used? Exactly, point, exactly. Right? <laughs> okay, so this is just a totally self-indulgent question. I'm a television addict. What do you watch on TV? Because I'm oh, curious, given like the content of the book, I, like, I'm so curious what you like to watch on TV. Okay, so I watch um, documentaries about Alaska. Surprise, okay, didn't um, see that coming. <laughs> And here's the thing, and I've been thinking about writing about this. I was why my husband just always makes fun of me because I watch all these Alaskan shows and these people who go out and you know just live in these extreme conditions. I think what it is is that I want so badly to live that life to kind of like, prove. which is why you moved to Southern California. <laughs> the extreme well, conditions. I came here kicking and screaming, really, <laughs> but I, I. I think I want to prove myself, you know, like these people are out there and they have to be tough and they have to rely on their own strength and they have to, you know, power through. But the funny thing is, is I would probably just completely fall apart in the situation. I, I wouldn't make it because I'm, I'm not real self-sufficient, but I, I desire that so badly. I desire to not need other people. And, um, I think that's why I love those shows so much. Just seeing these people just doing their thing and something that I probably can't do. So I, I watch that and I watch, I watch really dumb, just like reality TV shows, um, mind numbing because I have trouble sleeping. And also I'll watch things just over and over again. Gilmore Girls, The Office. What do you watch over and over? Okay. I watch The Gil- Office right, over the and office. over, Seinfeld, um, 30, 30 Rock, and Gilmore Girls. And for a while, for a couple of years, I watched Mary Tyler Moore every single night before bed. Mary Tyler Moore, great yeah. show. No sca- I thought you'd be a scandal person. For no, I'm super sensitive and all of that stuff. Really, My husband watches all those kinds of things and I, I can't watch it. It, it bothers me. I start praying for the people in the TV show. <laughs> just, I, I just, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, serial <laughs> dramas are so good now that you do put, they, you put them on your prayer list. Yeah. You're so, yeah. It's, it's, um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's an incredible thing. So what do you do when somebody says to you, okay, this is great, the message of your book. I love it. But if you preach this stuff, it's going to be Christians going, wow. Yeah. Like, how do you how, how do you say, look, no, this is actually not the effect of this? Yeah, you know, and, and that is something that I've gotten, not, not quite yet from the book because it's freshly out, but just in my own ministry in the past. Um, yeah, my, my deal is that... Um, preach Christ and preach the gospel. And that's going to cause people to understand their belovedness and how much they're loved by God. And when they know how much they're loved by God, they're not going to desire. Well, there's going to be times where they might run, but God's going to hang on to them, but they're not going to desire to go out and just totally destroy themselves for the most part. I'm not afraid of that at all. I'm not, I, I don't need to give, people don't need permission to sin from me. Cause they're going to sin anyways, right? Like it's not me giving anyone permission to sin. It's just me telling people, this is your savior. This is what you have. Even if you screw it up big time, he's still there. And I think that's what people need to hear because when you just, you know, bang them over the head with the law, they just run. And I, I can't, I, that was how life was for me for so long. Just the, the, you know, loud beating drum of the law 
that I just wanted to run from it. And I did, um, instead of hearing how much I'm loved and welcomed and desired by God, that makes me want to go to him. And that's, that's the message of the gospel. Yeah. Kim, uh, Leslie Newbegin, who's a, you know, Christian was a missionary 20th century, uh, to India and great Christian thinker says, you know, the gospel is not and the answer to the problem of evil or some philosophical, metaphysical question. The gospel is the answer to the question when people see the kingdom breaking out and they say, what's the deal? And that's the gospel. I feel like you're all, the, the, the way you share your own story in this book, uh, no holds barred, kind of uncensored, uh, is provocative. And even if someone didn't believe in God, they'd want to after they read the book. And, and I can't say anything nicer about a book. So um, thank you for taking some time out of your messy life <laughs> to be with all of us messes who are listening here. And I wish I could visit your your, your landscape someday and see <laughs> what you describe in the book because it's beautiful. Thank you. There's a giant trampoline out there now. So we would love to have you come jump on it with us. But um, thank you for having me. It's really great to talk. We'll have you back again. All right. Thanks, Scott. Once again, on the Mockingcast, Sarah Condon, Texas. Hey. And you know, we're recording in the evening, which sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Uh, Sarah is still in the bathroom. I, I am. I am. It just With means that it's so hot here, you have in the shower in the morning and at night. So it just, it's because I showered like at 6.30. That's Texas hot. Now, also David Saul in the compound. Actually, you're not in the compound. You're at the home office. I'm at the just the home period. Just the home. <laughs> yep. Uh, David Zoll from in in Charlottesville, Virginia. I've never been to Charlottesville. Well, it's a you know it's like the Shire, but with um, lots of people wearing orange. With but with people that are more than three foot tall and don't have hair all over their feet. Yeah, but pretty much. But though you know, you know my my kids tonight were not wearing shoes. If, I, if you close your eyes, if you squint, they look like uh, little hobbits. By the way, I did get. And this is strictly for vanity's sake. I did get a comment about a joke I made on the Game of Thrones wrap-up about my uh, Tyrion um, hobbits gone wild. Tyrion is like a, <laughs> somebody actually was very appreciative of that. So uh, you know who you are out there who gave that shout-out. So thank you very much. And here we go. Let's dive into the content of another week. And so I'm taking a moment, a moment of personal privilege because... I can't believe the Star Trek movie is out and Lindy and I have not seen it, which is unusual for me, semi-unusual for her. If you take The Wrath of Khan and put it on and turn the volume down, I can say like almost every line from the film. Wow. <laughs> what do you think about that, Sarah? I think it's amazing. I mean, yeah. that's a talent. You're fun at dinner parties. He tasks me. Kirk, I will have my... Kirk. I'm pretty have you ever sure heard I, the old, I, I have saw you ever a heard documentary old, about you one time. Have you ever heard the old <laughs> Klingon proverb that revenge is a dish best served cold? <laughs> it is very cold in space, Kirk. That's my Ricardo Montalban. So, but this is actually a piece that we have from Mental Floss, hmm. which I've never heard of, but I like, I like it already. 
that actually in the, the original Star Trek motion picture script, which is panned by a lot of Trekkers, I mean, they say Trekkies, but the technical term is Trekkers, but we'll just say, go, go with the vernacular. It's like, Kierkegaard is what you're supposed to say, or Nietzsche, but you sound like everybody looks at you like you're an elitist if you say that. So we'll say Trekkies, didn't like them all. But originally, uh, at the end, Kirk was supposed to punch Jesus in the face. I mean, high drama, space opera, uh, ending with the you know beating of Christ himself. I think it sounds like Gene Roddenberry originally when he wrote the script for the motion picture, which turned out to be one of like, you know, I've never been able to make it through the first one. And I actually, I'm, I'm not a huge Star Trek person, by no means a Trekker. <laughs> uh, uh- Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> However, I, you know, I've enjoyed those, some of the films, but every time I've tried to get into the first one and it's just so, so incredibly boring. But, uh, I guess the original script had them confronting a godlike character like they did in the final frontier, right, Scott? Yeah. And they did what? it in, they did it kind of in the first film, but what it was is it was the satellite Voyager, which they sent out into, space and it was on a space exploration it came back and it was calling itself V'ger but it had like amassed all the intelligence of the universe and it was like it was the child coming back threatening the parent Mm. see I never got to that stage I just remember stuff with the Kirk's son and it being this very convoluted uh, you know uh, it's not Kirk's son that was Wrath of Khan soap opera okay well then see I uh, I Sarah's dying to jump in Sarah like I see you like you're, you're just you look like because our listeners can't see the Skype video feed, you look like you're dying to come. Yeah, I, well, I mean, so so my only context for Star Trek is that when I was a kid and I got sick and had to stay home from school, my dad would either let me watch The Trouble with Tribbles or Citizen Kane. I've seen The Trouble with Tribbles a lot. Isn't that the name of it? But that's... I, I read this and I just wondered, like, who he had in mind to play Jesus like, was it Elvis? You know what I mean? Like, who was, like, the actor of the moment that, like, he was envisioning when he saw, like, a space messiah? I like I like the line where it says that William Shatner was apparently really into the idea, but uh, the studio turned it down. They said this might not be the best for PR for the film to end with a climactic scene of, of Kirk giving Jesus a beatdown. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, okay, so let me jump to some defenses. Hey, Tribbles is a great episode, and also, like, Every day, tribbles, rosebud, tribbles, rosebud. But that's your life. That's uh, my life. Yeah, if I was going to be homesick, I knew. I, I, I would have the choice before I even got home from school. Like, What, what more <laughs> do you need on a sick day, really? <laughs> I mean, they're ridiculous to the sublime. But I think, actually, as someone who loves Star Trek, like it took me a long time to appreciate the first film. And actually, I think The Wrath of Khan is a great film on any score. I mean, it's sort of, you know, Tale of Two Cities about death and, and, and age and finitude. And, but I actually like Star Trek V, which is where they do, like, basically the plot is that they go to this uh, place, that, which is supposed to be the place of galactic peace, where the Rom- there's Romulans and Klingons and humans all together, but it's really like, like Reno, Nevada of space. And it's, but then this guy who winds up being Spock's brother of Vulcan gets very emotional. And of course the, Vulcans, it's not that Vulcans don't have emotions, they repress them for logic, like, little Ella. <laughs> and he has this spiritual experience because this deity, who's not really a deity, it's just an, a very powerful alien. And he has this vision and he's able to like seemingly relieve people of their pain. And so how he takes over the city and how like they draw the Enterprise there is this guy, he, he basically does this kind of, you know, hypnotic kind of weird thing and and then oh my pain is gone and i'll follow you everywhere so basically even mccoy 
uh, falls for it. The cynic. He's yeah, a- yeah, like he's like, oh, Jim, you got to see this. And there's this great scene where Kirk knows it's a false god, and he says, look, I mean, bones, you're a physician. You know that pain and guilt can't be waved away with a wave of magic wand. I need my pain. I am my pain. And there's like this interesting thing where Kirk doesn't fall for it. And then they get through the, this like, you know, the bridge of the outer frontier or whatever. They, they, they go and they meet the deity. And it looked, it has all the faces of all the human and alien deities. And they're all about to fall for it. And Kirk goes, and they say, bring your ship here that I might merge with it. And Kirk just goes, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> and like, but it's this, it's this great moment where like, uh, you know, I, you think about this film, which again, I would not defend it as a great film outside of the Star Trek genre. And I wouldn't even say it's the third best. Well, maybe it's the third best Star Trek film. Maybe. I don't know. But I think the beauty of it is that it's like a window on the prosperity gospel. Like everybody gets hoodwinked into this idea that really there's a a spiritual narcotic that will take away my pain. And now I'll follow you anywhere and do anything, even stuff that's out of character, deleterious to myself and all my social relations. And so like... Kirk looks like the cynic, and yet he's really the one that knows that pain is part of the human condition, and you have to go through it. It just can't be narcoticized or covered over. Huh. So I like how interspersed with the extremely profound thing you just said were these clearly well-practiced imitations of the Star Trek characters. <laughs> I think that's, that's, uh, that's something we just witnessed that's kind of a savant at work. So well, I, thank you. I praise, praise yeah. you, Scott, and I praise God for making yeah. you the way you are. And praise William Shatner, who is a... a, a and also just an industrious guy. A prince guy. among men. He's, he is a prince among men. are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Now, moving on from the sublime to the rest of reality, because where do you go from Star Trek? By the way, we should say, I forget the actor's name, but tragedy uh, of blessed memory and thoughts and prayers to his family. The guy who died, who plays Chekhov in the new series, um, tragically died in a freak car accident. And it's cut down in the prime of life. So, um, yeah, I, yeah. Really, I really like that guy. He was great. So moving on to one ultimate thing to the other. Let's talk authenticity and politics. Yeah, there's an um, article in the New York Times Magazine this week, um, it, written by Jennifer, uh, I think, Salai, I, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's about authenticity and it's sort of, the, the, it's a word that gets bandied about, not just in terms of our elections, but also in terms of celebrities and uh, artists and all sorts of, and, and preachers all the time. Someone so-and-so is really authentic. And uh, so what does it mean? And what, what, what are we looking for? What do we mean when we say authenticity? What, what are we, because it's clearly a positive in our society. It's a net positive. And uh, she sort of traces it. She talks about it in terms of Trump, who's been, who's seen as authentic, and Hillary, who's not seen as authentic, and how that's a bit of a liability. But I mean, for me, where it gets interesting is when she sort of delves into, um, 
how this is an ideal or a law standard, an edict that has really changed over time. It's even more of a moving target than something like beauty or wealth. Uh, She says, what we consider to be real and authentic has changed over time and varied according to whom you ask. For Freud, our authentic selves wanted to sleep with our mothers and murder our fathers. And it was civilization and psychoanalysis that kept- Wait, wait, wait. That's bad. <laughs> they kept oh, I, mean, I mean, I know that. I knew that. Wait, I knew that. I, I'm just kidding. I was just saying if you guys did. It was an open, open door, an open door that he walked through uh, that kept our murderous ids in check. For Rousseau, authenticity was man's blissful state in nature before he was corrupted by society. But then she goes on to say that basically what we mean by authenticity is sort of what's underneath your social conditioning, all of your politeness, all of your manners. And whether or not that's a good thing, some people would say that the real self, the pure self, the the true self is um, something to constantly be expressed and revealed. And if it's, if it's somehow authentic, therefore it's good. Others would say that it's, you know, to thine own self be true. What if, what if you're, uh, you know, an asshole? What does that, what does that mean about you? So, um, and then, of course, it gets it gets uh, cobbled together with the with the uh, bourgeois kind of thing about how you want um, you're going to throw away your perfectly good dining table in order to get a more authentic one, which is built out of floorboards from the 19th century. And and you know, there's something you know noble to maybe rehabbing sorts of wood, but it could call that authentic to you as a person living in the 21st century as an oxymoron. So I, I find it to be a source of anxiety, uh, authenticity, um, to, and, and it's, and it's one of these things like humble, right? I mean, it's like the second you're told to be humble, the second you start it's trying, trying to be humble, trying to be authentic, well, then you're no, no longer authentic. You're, you're by definition putting something on that's not who you are. So it, there's a lot of like little, uh, you know, dimensions to this. Donald Trump is humble. He's humble. Trump is humble. And when I'm so humble, when I'm elected, you're going to be bored by my humility. That's what he would say. <laughs> I'm working on my Trump. My Trump is a work in progress. You know, what, the place where this really hit the, hit the, um, carpet or the literally a few years ago was the Jennifer Lawrence um Anne Hathaway uh dichotomy you know people hated that remember that Oscars uh where people hated Anne Hathaway because she seemed like such an actress and so put on and so like polite and kind of just over affected and then Jennifer Lawrence came up and it seemed like she was like your best friend but who just happened to be like really you know incredibly good looking but um she fell on the on the on the red carpet and everyone thought oh how authentic we love her we hate Anne Hathaway let's basically kill her and um so authentic can mean clumsy authentic can mean authentic can mean flawed and it can mean uh truly um honest you know I think that's what people usually mean when they say it I don't know Wh- which side of the divide the Lawrence uh, uh Hathaway divide did you guys fall on I mean I love Anne Hathaway's haircut so like <laughs> Sarah by the way I, w- I, I just want to say to you Sarah, uh-huh. I described you today in a phone conversation uh-huh. that was not with you as authentic. Oh, oh. So I'm I, not sure how to take I, that. I, I, I just went, I meant it. <laughs> I meant it in the, in, a, in the most sincere like way I could. But now, right? Just I'm just saying I don't, I don't want to influence right. your commentary. You but there's a lot, a lot riding on it for you with the, with one person who I promise you will be listening to this podcast. You felt. 
Wait, wait, you fell on the Hathaway divide uh, side? I, I'm, tell us more. Oh, yeah, totally Anne Hathaway. Well, her haircuts are great. Hey, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, I, uh, I have issues the way. I thought she was awesome. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, part of the reason I first really fell in love with Mockingbird is because Mockingbird talks about low anthropology in a way um, that, um, I think most major religious uh, Christian websites are, are afraid to talk about low anthropology. So when people talk about being like their most authentic politicians, I'm like, doesn't that mean you sleep with an intern? Like, isn't that being your most authentic self? Like, I think things get very sketchy when we start to talk about people being true to themselves. Because I think there's a lot of like self-justification behavior that can really kick in when you're thinking, well, I'm just being authentic, right? So I'm oh, going to cheat on my spouse. Like, I don't know. I just... It's a word that makes me very, I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Dave, but I'll take the compliment, Scott, all day long. I'll take the compliment. Let me just say, I'm going to read right now from, you know, because I have a personal stake in this, because I feel like, um, it, here's an excerpt from one of our reviews, many reviews on iTunes. Actually, we don't have enough. So <laughs> if, and, th- and this seems vain, but actually it's weird. But like, if you like the podcast, people actually will listen to it if more people write reviews. So if you think it's worthwhile to do, you know, do just it. Be but authentic. If, and, yeah, just yeah. be authentic. So somebody said that you will be hard-pressed to find a Christian podcast with this specific cocktail of intelligence, sincerity, and irreverence. Its tuxedo t-shirt tone, Sarah, will disarm <laughs> you. Tuxedo bathrobe tone. Tuxedo, yeah, tuxedo bathrobe. Yeah. It's a metaphor for a bathroom. And then someone will quote Miroslav Volf and it's all over. To be honest, I didn't like the host at first. He <laughs> felt like a contrived chumminess. But after a few listens, I realized he's the smartest, well, that's debatable, and funniest guy, that's also debatable, on the podcast. And now I feel like we are friends. Totally true. All, all is this to say, worth a few listens. So basically, I don't know if I'm authentic or not, but, you know, <laughs> but people don't <laughs> like me at first. So, But the, 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 the most important thing here is to write reviews for the podcast, and we promise we won't read them all. <laughs> I'm just on a, on a, no, no anything pressure. On a more semi-serious note, wherever you are politically, and like, you know, I tend to not make partisan judgments, and this is not a partisan judgment. I feel like people get Donald Trump wrong every single time, and I feel like, oh, he's doing the 67-minute rants. Like, they're calculating, I mean, there's a thing where like, he's captivating the media, and it looks like it's the authenticity card. And it's actually, he's doing theater. Now, again, I don't, like, I'm not saying don't vote for him or vote for him because I'm not making a partisan judgment. People vote the way they vote. But, like, you can do theatric vaudeville and look authentic. You know, like, you know, it's funny because there's a story that, like, Ronald Reagan was so good at speech stuff that they could just, on the teleprompter, put uh, in the middle of the speech, like, anecdote. He would just tell a story. Jimmy Carter was so bad at it, they had to, like, get anecdotes on note cards and they would number them, you know, like, so he could memorize, like, and if they needed to point the number, number 54 or number 22. So they said that he and Rosalind, who were deeply in love, flying in between campaign events, sometimes he would hold her hand and go, Rosalind, 52. <laughs> because he was so shy and not emotive. So that's sincere love, though. But well, the, the, it's pretty ironic, though, that we would judge actors and actresses according to their authenticity when what they're their entire job, their whole talent is being able to act to convince you that there are other things than what they actually are. Like that's the whole, that's the whole talent and it's a real talent. But at the same time, you think, you know, if Jennifer Lawrence is really a great actress, one of the things she can do is 
act authentic. You know, it, it's a uh, it's it's an impossible and completely nebulous concept that we've latched onto. And uh, but hey, it certainly sells. Uh, sells and by books. the way, in Star Trek Two, to get away Movie to get away tickets. from Khan, they went to the into the Mutara Nebula, which is because um, you said <laughs> nebulous, and actually they're worried about it because their scanners won't work. But neither will Khan's. And so Kirstie Alley says, but our scanners will be useless. And Spock, Leonard Nimoy, a blessed memory, says, sauce for the goose, Mr. Savick. The odds will be even. Would you like to swing on a star? Carry movies home in a jar. And be better off than you are. Oh, won't you rather be a moon? Is an animal with long funny ears. He kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny and his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate the ghost, shh, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar? Sarah, let's talk white people. What? Our what? resident white person, please go. Speak I think David's the whitest person on the podcast, if I'm doing my math right. It's possible. I think, Sarah, you and I together with some spliced DNA could make one full white person. That's right. Um, I, yeah, I just... Uh, so I don't have a piece I want to talk about, um, but I just want to collectively uh, address my social media feed that is filled with a lot of anxiety and a lot of, um, a lot of law right now. I'll just say that a lot of law, um, addressed towards white preachers. And I'm very aware of the fact that, uh, this Sunday morning, a lot of white preachers are going to get into pulpits and they're going to have all these voices of perhaps people they went to seminary with in their heads telling them exactly what they should say, um, about these two, Philando and Alton, who were shot, who were, um, killed by the police, who were murdered. Um, and I just want to say to those white preachers, if I can be so bold as to do that, um, that we're praying for you and that the most important thing that we do when we preach the gospel is to offer people the com- And, you know, Scott and I have had a lot of conversations about that phrase. Scott, I hope you remember it. It's um to, you know, people throw it around a lot when things like this happen. They say that, you know, our job, and they say this about preachers, is to to comfort the afflicted and to... Afflict affli- the comfortable. The yes. Comfort- and what's the history of that phrase? Yeah, it's basically like... It's what, you know, back when they're like, back when all news outlets were partisan, which that's not anymore. No, but like, you know, when there was a zillion newspapers, like it was what like certain Chicago newspapers thought their job was in the 19th century. So it was, it was not at all religious. It's, it's, it's orientation was like, stick it to this political class. Like it it was not, you know, at all. So I just, I just want to say that everyone is afflicted. Who's walking into your church this, this Sunday. And I think that's, none of them are comfortable. And and none um, of them are comfortable. No. And certainly my prayers, um, are with these, these two men who were shot and with their families. And I think that's very clear that that's where we all are. I'm, I, I am feeling like anxious and heavy about, 
what I should preach this Sunday, and I'm not even preaching this Sunday. So I just want to say that, um, yeah, our you know our our prayers and our encouragement are with you in whatever you say. Yeah, amen. Yeah. So you've heard something. You've heard some radical things. Star Trek, and we're praying for white preachers. You know, I. Uh, <laughs> I'm praying for black preachers too, but I mean, I, I do think there is this. You know, my Facebook feed right now is filled with just shame. I mean, it's just shaming white preachers. Like, if you don't talk about what happened in this specific way, if you don't address gun control in this specific way, and to be quite frank with you, what we are dealing with, what we are dealing with here is, is you know, in the profound racial sin of a country that has just gone undealt with. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that you're going to solve that in the pulpit this Sunday morning. So I just... That's my word. I don't know if it's encouraging or not, but that's my word. David, do you have any, anything to add to that as as the whitest person <laughs> on the podcast? Well, gosh, I just, there's not really much to add to what Sarah said. I, I agree with her wholeheartedly. I think that we, the pulpit is um, the place for the gospel, and it's not the place for... Uh, um, to, and the gospel is universal, which speaks to sufferers and sinners, which is everyone. And there really is, the older you get, and I'm not, I, I don't, cons- I, I, I wouldn't call myself certainly that old, but, um, you know, if there's any single truth that resounds across all traditions and across every sort of wise person you meet and everything I've, you know, even this Alan de Bonton book I've been reading, which is so full of uh, truth, it's that no one is comfortable. Like, how do we get that through people's heads? Like, all these these so-called, you know, uh, people that need to be yelled at and shamed from the pulpit, like, none of them are acting out of a sense of uh, uh, too much comfort. They're all completely gripped by fear and uh, insecurity or denial or some kind of um, mix. It's usually, it's actually always some kind of mix. And so, do you view people as basically fragile and in pain and in needing of some sort of word of, to, of comfort and survival and absolution? Or do you see them as basically needing to be educated and told what to think? And, uh, it, that never works. It never has worked. It never is going to work. You cannot lead with ethics. You just can't. And and like, you just go ahead and try it if you want. But it, you're just going to make people angrier. McFly, <laughs> I, I, go ahead and try it. McFly, did you just call me a chicken? <laughs> now I think it's interesting because the lectionary. For those of you that are lectionary preachers, of which Good Samaritan, right? Yeah, it's Luke ten. It's funny because it, Jesus, the the the. It's scribe who says, he said this to justify himself, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about, you know, like a, uh, you know, the, the priest goes by and walks on the other side to this, you know, wounded Jew. And then the Levite walks by because he's, you know, he's like your deacon, right? In Episcopal church. I mean, his, 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 um, his status of orders are slightly less, but he must stay clean because he must handle things like the gospel reading or occasionally a wedding. And then the Samaritan comes, which would be like the Al Qaeda guy or something like, or Donald Trump or whoever, <laughs> or Hillary Clinton, whoever, whoever would, you know, push all your buttons, right? Or like, you know, whoever you can't stand, right? Maybe your mother-in-law, which... <laughs> Would not be that for Whoever me because Melinda is wonderful. But yeah. uh, we love you, Melinda. We, Thank Melinda you, Melinda Inman is a big fan. Not be but you know, <laughs> it's interesting because I, a lot of the verbs, and for this, I'm indebted to Ken Bailey's work, um, poet and peasant in in the ancient Near East or something. He was a saint. He's like the Billy Graham of Pittsburgh, and I've met him a couple of times. But great New Testament scholar. Right? The verbs are all verbs in the prophets that are actively used by Yahweh, binding up and healing. So basically, Jesus is saying to him, 
I, you, you struggle with me because I don't look like the Torah, but I am your salvation. <laughs> and you're in the ditch. <laughs> like you're trying to justify yourself and that's what's putting you in the ditch. So Jesus is not, is both the man in the ditch with his vicarious humanity, but he's also as the God man. He's the God man who comes in Samaritan clothing. And so mm-hmm. God, like with all of the partisan, tribal, racial stuff, like I pray that like we meet the Samaritan Jesus, all of us Sunday, whether would you, whether we're final election or not. Would you say he's like a a priest that looks like a DJ? Yes, like jazz. <laughs> By the way, we forgot to mention that yes, there's nothing uh, more beautiful or fitting to conclude on than the fact that the Episco, the Episco. Episcopal, the Episc. I always get it wrong. It's Episcopal Disco. I, I want to say Episcopo Disco because I like <laughs> the Episcopal Disco, which, by the way, dude, uh, I just want to say something. Like, David, your family is beautiful and has blessed us so much. And I felt like the fraternal uh, connection, like, it, it, yeah, Scott and I are totally want to be siblings. Exactly. Like, we I mean, want to be. I, I think it's weird, but you just have to. Deal I think with Sarah, it. Let's just let's say this. Sarah's going to get the Thanksgiving invite before I will. <laughs> All I'll say to those who are listening, let's just I thought it was very fitting that Simeon did not appear once in that document. <laughs> but I heard his voice, right? It was his voice, right? <laughs> no, 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 that was that was Tay McNabb. That was party dad himself. Simeon uh Zal is is as far as that documentary is concerned, he doesn't exist. Well, you know what? Simeon Except for there's one picture of him, I think. Simeon has sent me his dissertation published uh, and an article which refines it, and he is gonna be on the cast this summer. And he will exist on this podcast in full effect. All right. Praise God. See? The God who redeems those in the ditch. Exactly. <laughs> I, can't, I can't resist. You keep giving me openings. I'll just make Simeon jokes all night As long. are all of us. Talk to you guys next Thank week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As usual, you can find links to any of the content we refer to on our website, mbird.com. We love mail. So if you have a story to tell or you'd like to share feedback about the podcast, you can email me at scottjones at embird.com. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend or go to iTunes and give us a rating and write a review. And if you want to partner with us financially, we'd welcome your support. We exist because of the enthusiasm and the generosity of you, our readers and listeners. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week.